guys. Welcome back to Oral Max Facts. This is Riti Patel here with Mary McBarry. And we are excited to tell you that we have a very important guest joining us in this episode. First of all, we love the love that we are receiving from you guys. Thank you for all your comments, questions, and support. Please keep it coming. Today, we will end our discussion on Emraj series with the discussion on surgical management. We have tried breaking this topic down very thoroughly to help make sense of its physiology and management. Miriam, I think it's fair to say that in nutshell, when it comes to surgical management of Emraj, the aim is to remove dead bone and help with wound healing. But when do we consider surgery? Exactly. When it comes to surgical treatment of Emraj, AMS position paper stage-specific therapeutic options is limited. As is, patients with stage 0 and stage 1 diseases are generally not warranted for surgical interventions. These patients are managed usually with Paradex and antibiotic. Doctors Williams and Orion offer surgical treatment when disease progresses to the point where symptoms are not controlled with medical therapies. But is it that simple? Let's look at this further. Although staging helps simplify treatment, a lot of patients still don't fit in one box. A wide spectrum of a disease is often seen with stage 2 hemorrhage, ranging from focal minimally symptomatic exposed bone to severely painful widespread bone necrosis. This makes it difficult to recommend a single surgical treatment for stage 2. So what helps drive operative intervention? Is it patient's medical status, comorbidities, pain level, their treatment goals, and or the extent of the disease? Those with mild stage 2 disease who have minimal pain and localized bone exposure may not require surgical intervention, may remain stable with medical management. You know, while we are considering surgery, what we really have to decide is what surgical intervention are we considering here? So normally with surgery, we think about debridement or marginal or segmental resection. Plus, you have to decide if you want any agentive therapies with surgery. And as we alluded to earlier in our last episode, there is no concrete scientific evidence supporting the use of any of the agentive treatment, such as PRF or low-level laser therapy. Debridement and marginal resection both refer to removing necrotic bone primarily in the alveolus, and the goal here is to maintain the intact inferior border of the mandible. Segmental resection, however, refers to an unblocked removal of involved bone, including the inferior border of the mandible with a resulting continuity defect. One review article that was published in Oral Oncology looked at the success rate of different therapeutic approaches. The successes The success rate for local debridement and marginal resection ranged from 15% to 100%. Let me repeat that. The success (laughs) rate ranged from 15 to 100%. That basically tells us that even with the surgical approach, we don't have concrete guidelines as to how much bone needs to be removed and if soft tissue closure actually plays a role or not. Now, I know from personal experience that sometimes you remove a large chunk of bone, primary soft tissue closure is not always achievable. So what's the next step? 
do you use the PRF? Well, the verdict is still out there. All right, so this is where our expert comes in. Miriam, would you be so kind to tell us who our guest speaker is today? Of course, Dr. Eric Carlson is one that needs no introduction in our field. He is the professor and chairman of Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery at University of Tennessee, and of course, Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. He graduated University of Pennsylvania Dental School, similar to Reedy and I, but a few years prior to us, and then pursued his OMS residency at General Hospital in Pittsburgh. Following that, he completed his head and neck fellowship and medical school at University of Miami. Dr. Carlson, of course, has numerous journal articles and book chapters publication, and he's one of the legends of our field who, as a medical educator, took a surgical sabbatical to pursue a Master of Education at Harvard University in 2018. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Carlson. Thank you, Dr. Akbari and Dr. Patel. It's a, a great honor to be with you. I thank you all very much for the opportunity to discuss this fascinating pathologic entity that remains enigmatic in the specialty of oral and maxillofacial surgery. I still remember where I was in September of 2003 when two communications surfaced in the month of September. The first was a letter to the editor of the Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery by Dr. Robert Marks of the University of Miami. In that letter to the editor, Dr. Marks discussed 36 patients with painful bone exposure in the jaws, 24 of whom had received iridia, six of whom had received zometa, 18 patients had been treated for multiple myeloma, 17 for metastatic breast cancer, and only one for osteoporosis. Dr. Marks indicated and lamented that this disease process, that this observation of painful bone exposure in the jaws represented a heretofore unrecognized and unreported serious adverse effect. Interestingly, during the same month, I had the opportunity to attend the 85th annual meeting of the American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons in Orlando, Florida on September 12, 2003. And during one of the abstract sessions, Dr. Tracy Rosenberg, a resident of Dr. Salvatore Ruggiero's at Long Island Jewish Medical Center, reviewed 26 cancer patients with osteonecrosis of the jaws. 11 of those patients had disease in the maxilla, 17 in the mandible, so one of those patients had disease located in both of the jaws. And Dr. Rosenberg indicated that none of those osteonecrotic sites on biopsy had evidence of metastatic disease. That abstract ultimately led to the publication of Dr. Ruggiero's very well-known paper, one of the first papers to appear on this topic in the peer-reviewed literature in 2004 in the Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. Ruggiero and his cohorts reported on 63 patients with 71 sites of osteonecrosis. A significant majority of them had cancer, as we might expect. Most of them had unilateral mandibular bone involvement. As part of that paper, Dr. Ruggiero made a statement that resonates in my head 
but something that I've carried with me since 2003 and applied to my patients for whom I primarily offer surgical management. And that is, Ruggiero indicated the management of these patients remains extremely difficult. It was often difficult, if not impossible, to obtain a surgical margin with viable bleeding bone. And since 2003, I've thought a lot about these two communications. And I think what we've realized over the last 18 years since these two communications in September of 2003 is that, in fact, this disease, initially referred to as bronze or bisphosphonate-related osteonecrosis of the jaws, and now MRONG or medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaws, in fact, responds very well to primary surgical management of all stages in most patients who are surgical candidates and who we believe in a shared decision-making process will benefit by surgical therapy. So in other words, what was once believed really to be a non-surgical disease, and in fact, by the admission of some members of our specialty, continues to be a non-surgical disease, really is one that responds very nicely to surgical therapy and with curative intent. Wow, Dr. Carlson, I think that was very well said as far as summarizing when we started recognizing this entity as a disease and how far we have come along. And definitely, there is, this is a very controversial topic from a standpoint of treatment. So let's dive into our conversation, starting with question pretending to treatment algorithm. I know you see in your practice a lot of patients with this disease entity, and maybe you can walk us through how do you make your decision leading up to surgery? Certainly. And I appreciate the comment that was made earlier about the AOMS position paper on Emron, specifically the 2014 update that creates strategies for management of this disease as a function of stage. And in fact, the 2014 position paper, as you indicated, recommends no treatment, certainly for patients with stage zero disease that in and of itself represents a very controversial stage, yet very conservative non-surgical methods for stage one disease that represents exposed and necrotic bone without symptoms. Specifically, the position paper calls for antibacterial mouth rinses, for clinical follow-up on an every three-month basis, and for patient education. But it's interesting that 11 years following the initial identification of this disease in 2003, the 2014 position paper called for no surgical management of stage one disease. I'll share with you momentarily the recommendations in the international literature, as well as the outcomes for early stage osteonecrosis resection, including those in stage two that represent now symptomatic bone exposure, that is patients with erythema of the surrounding oral soft tissues with uh, infection and certainly with pain. The third edition of the AOMS position paper published in 2014 recommends symptomatic treatment with oral antibiotics for patients designated with stage two disease with oral antibacterial mouth rinses 
pain control, and then debridement to relieve soft tissue irritation and infection control, but no specific guidance in terms of curative therapy for stage two disease. It's not really until we arrive at a stage three uh, designation, which are patients who are by definition infected, who have a greater magnitude of exposed necrotic bone, for example, who have orocutaneous fistulae, possibly a pathologic fracture, oral antral or oral nasal communication in the maxilla. These patients are recommended for antibiotic therapy and then surgical debridement or resection for longer term palliation of infection and pain. But interestingly, in this 2014 update, this position paper doesn't recognize the ability to provide curative therapy with surgical resection. I'm sure that we'll speak to that in a moment. Suffice it to say that I believe one of the most controversial elements of MRONG is what to do with early stage disease, particularly patients who remain asymptomatic. But I look at this disease as a complex wound, not unlike the osteonecrosis that we see in other patients, for example, those with radiation tissue injury that we refer to as osteoradionecrosis. And those patients who have advanced osteomyelitis with sequestration of bone that we also refer to as osteonecrosis. So when we look at the international literature, I think it's very compelling to examine the the data and the systematic reviews very critically. Some of those investigations include the report by Ruggiero and Cohn, published in the Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery in 2015, It represented a retrospective review of 420 patients with MRONG. 337 of those patients had complete records and had the ability to be followed up extensively. Interestingly, 82% of those patients had stage one disease. The significant majority of those 337 patients had stage two disease, specifically 163 patients and 92 of those patients had stage three disease. So what we appreciate is a great opportunity really to look at outcomes of patients with early stage disease, specifically patients with stage one and stage two disease. Operative therapy in this study defined as an alveolectomy, a marginal or segmental resection of the mandible was performed in 178 patients and 80% improved or completely healed. Non-operative therapy was defined as those patients given systemic antibiotics and antimicrobial oral rinses. And non-operative therapy was performed in 159 patients and 84% of patients were stable or worse. So the authors concluded their study by indicating that patients who received operative care, and again, a majority of these patients, a significant majority of these patients had early stage disease. Patients who received operative care were 28 times more likely to have a positive outcome. This is very compelling data, particularly with regard 
to the utility of surgical management for early stage disease. Giadici, Barone, and Diodati in 2020 in the Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery, in their paper entitled, Can Surgical Management Improve Resolution of Medication-Related Osteonecrosis of the Jaws at Early Stages? A prospective cohort study looked at 129 patients with 133 sites of osteonecrosis. 57 of those patients had stage one disease. 72 of those patients had stage two disease. Interestingly, all surgical procedures were performed under local anesthesia in an office setting. Surgery was specifically defined as sequestrectomy and debridement of soft tissues using a piezoelectric instrument, including a margin of surrounding bone without creating loss of continuity of the mandible back to bleeding bone. The primary outcome variables of this study were the time to achieve complete or incomplete wound healing after surgery, the time to downstaging of the focus of osteonecrosis, the postoperative pain level, swelling, and possible recurrence during follow-up. Interestingly, patients with stage one osteonecrosis, again, those who were completely asymptomatic, they just had exposed necrotic bone, had a statistically shorter time to complete mucosal healing under the parameters of this study, specifically 56.4 plus or minus 54.5 days compared to those patients managed with this protocol with stage two osteonecrosis, which was measured at 83.1 plus or minus 74.9 days. In terms of downstaging, stage two patients were downstaged with surgical therapy more rapidly at 33.6 plus or minus 9.9 days compared to stage one patients who were downstaged at 56.4 plus or minus 54.5 days. So the downstaging by definition of stage one patients translated to cure. Interesting. Carlson, sorry to interrupt you. Um, that's fascinating data. Just so I understand what you're saying clearly, you were saying that patient who had surgical treatment in the stage one, they were asymptomatic, had exposed bone only, they had a shorter time for their mucosal healing by 56 days compared to the medical management? So the uh, patients with stage one disease had a statistically shorter time to mucosal healing to patients with stage two disease. It's somewhat uh, intuitive, but the average was 56.4 days, uh, plus or minus 54.5 days. Got it. But that wasn't compared to other stage ones. It was just, this is just surgical compared to stage two. Uh, correct. And the stage two patients took longer, which is somewhat intuitive because those patients were symptomatic and had obvious signs of uh, clinical infection at the time of their surgical procedure. Got it. In 2014, Viscavi and his colleagues published in the International Journal of Dentistry a review of patients with stage one through three MRONG. 63 of them had stage one disease, 119 with stage two disease, 
and 11 patients with stage three disease. So a significant number of these patients had early stage disease. Surgical intervention, interestingly, in this cohort of patient was completed if six months of conservative therapy was unsuccessful. So I think this is important because in our profession, we've always struggled with the amount of time that's required for non-surgical therapy before committing patients to a surgical procedure. And this is a very compelling issue because I think most of us recognize that there is a period of time that we should observe to permit patients to undergo sequestration and spontaneous healing so as to permit them to avoid a surgical procedure. The problem in the international literature is that this recommended time frame varies substantially, and I'll weigh in further uh, on this in a moment. But what's interesting in this study is that surgery was performed specifically with resection, with surgical drills or erbium laser therapy, again, under local anesthesia. In terms of stage one patients, non-surgical therapy led to healing in only four of 36 patients. Stated differently, 32 of these patients with stage one disease did not heal with non-surgical therapy. In terms of those stage one patients subjected to surgical therapy, 25 of them healed acceptably while two did not. So in terms of the stage one patients, what we appreciate is two things really, is that conservative non-surgical therapy for stage one disease is not successful. But secondarily, surgical therapy for stage one disease, in fact, is successful in a large majority of cases. The authors found similar findings in their stage two patients. Those who underwent non-surgical therapy showed healing in only 13 cases, while 39 patients did not heal. In terms of those undergoing surgical therapy, 50 stage two patients healed, while 16 didn't. The stage three data is perhaps intuitive and consistent with the AOMS position paper published in 2014, and that is that these patients should undergo a surgical procedure with the likelihood that many are going to benefit by such therapy. And in fact, consistent with the observations of the authors of the 2014 position paper, the authors of this study found that of seven stage three patients undergoing non-surgical therapy, seven of them did not heal, zero of them did, but patients undergoing surgical therapy for stage three disease, three healed and one didn't. So the international literature is really an opportunity to examine outcomes in an evidence-based fashion. And I think when we do that, we recognize the, the utility and the value of subjecting appropriate patients with stage one and two disease to surgical resection. Surgical resection, I think, uh, is what I was not expecting you to say for stage one. I thought maybe it's just debridement, just getting to the bleeding bone, but you're saying right on resection for stage one. One of the most important things that we do in managing a patient with EMRAGE 
reminds me of a statement that Sir William Osler once said. He said, the good physician treats the patient's disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. And this is a reminder really to all of us that osteonecrosis exists in patients with medical comorbidity, specifically patients who have metastatic cancer. We know that about two-thirds of MRONG patients exist in patients with a background history of cancer, and many of them have metastatic disease and benefit by the ability of bisphosphonate medications in particular to reduce or eliminate skeletal-related events, of which there are three, hypercalcemia of malignancy, spinal cord compression, and pathologic fractures. So I would share with my patients that these are bone-strengthening medications. They're very helpful to their underlying cancer in terms of reducing skeletal-related events, but they also have an effect on controlling the cancer as well in terms of their ability to reduce circulating levels of vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF. So I think what we know is that the most important thing that we do when initially assessing a patient with MRONG is to look at their medical comorbidity, to determine if they are good candidates for surgical therapy, and in doing so, to not only examine the burden of metastatic disease that they might be demonstrating at that time with PET scans, bone scans, or plain films, for example, but also equally importantly, to look at their other medical comorbidity, the presence of diabetes, the presence of oxygen-dependent obstructive lung disease, the presence of corticosteroid rheumatologic disease, for example, and to perform a risk assessment of that patient to make sure that we're offering treatment that's in their best interest and that will also predict a high level of cure. Because as we know from early data, including that of Dr. Ruggiero in his 2004 paper, it's possible to make these patients worse. And we definitely don't wanna do that. Of equal importance, then, is also examining their social habits, particularly smoking. So what that means to me is probably the worst patient to take off to the operating room who has hemorrhage is a heavy smoker, a poorly controlled diabetic, and a patient with an advancing burden of metastatic disease. These are patients who are very likely not going to heal when we subject them to surgical therapy. And many of these patients actually represent a hard stop in terms of our decision regarding surgical therapy. Now, on the other hand, if we identify a patient who has stable metastatic disease, for example, who has multiple myeloma, that is in a durable state of remission, who's a non-diabetic, a non-smoker, who has an acceptable performance status and a good prognosis, these are patients who we probably ought to shift into the surgical arm if our shared decision-making process with the patient, their family, and their other medical and dental providers agree that a surgical approach is the appropriate way to go.
that is very well put. A lot of times the decision to patient selection is not that easy. When you say you put a hard stop on those patients, what's the next step for them? How do you present this to the patient? Sure. The, um, the hard stop really represents our recommendation for continued non-surgical management. And actually that hard stop really makes things a little bit easier for us because as we all know, the difficult decision here seems to be offering patients surgical therapy for stage one disease. It's a very controversial concept. It's not well received by many members of our specialty, although I think many are coming on board with this and certainly many more than we saw early on in our understanding of this disease. So the hard decision used to be what to do for patients who might be good candidates for surgical therapy. Those patients of the prior decade, for example, when disease management was even more controversial than it currently is. So I would say it's an easier decision to make in patients who arrive at that hard stop because we probably decide to not offer a surgical procedure, to continue to offer non-surgical methods of treatment. But most importantly, we continue to monitor those patients because they may, for example, cut down significantly on their smoking. Their disease may enter a durable remission at some point in the future. Their glycemic control of their type 2 diabetes, for example, may improve. So even though we apply a hard stop to some of these patients initially, there may come a time when patients present to us the opportunity to enter them into the surgical arm. I'll share with you also that there are two other elements that I really consider in my risk assessment of patients with MRONG in terms of a recommendation for surgical therapy. One is age and one not mutually exclusive of the prior criteria for the hard stop is my perceived understanding of the patient's prognosis and their longevity. Certainly when patients are in their 90s, and we, we see these patients frequently, and they have asymptomatic stage one disease, I think that's a fairly simple decision to make. We're not going to subject a patient to a surgical procedure when they're asymptomatic and they're quite elderly. Similarly, if I perceive that a patient is within six to 12 months of succumbing to their malignant disease, I'm less likely to make a recommendation for surgical therapy, in fact, regardless of the stage. So those are examples of when those hard stops are easy to accept from our perspective, as well as from the perspective of the patient, their family, and other medical and dental providers. Dr. Carlson, let me take you to the other end of the spectrum. As you mentioned, is the stage one surgical, offering surgical treatment like resection is which selling it to both patients and your, our colleagues is, uh, is a conversation that I'm not used to having. So uh, let's talk about that. Is there, a, is there a case on the other end of the spectrum that you consider conservative management for? Well, I think, I think there is. And, and um, 
as we've talked about, I, I think that this this disease, while very varied in its expression and perhaps in its response to a variety of different treatments, is not a one size fits all, certainly. What is interesting to me about the early literature regarding then bronze or bisphosphonate related osteonecrosis of the jaws is that the treatment recommendations were very prescriptive. It almost seemed early on that we didn't have a chance to offer patients surgical therapy, even when we thought that they would be good candidates for such. The algorithm, I think, that is real important that I'll share with you that I've recently developed is one that looks at the utility and benefit of both forms of treatment, non-surgical therapy and surgical. I think in a perfect world, we begin patients with a conservative non-surgical approach with the understanding that some, although in my experience, a significant minority of patients with early stage disease will in fact respond to non-surgical therapy. However, having said that and consistent with the AOMS 2014 position paper, I think it's important to advance patients with stage three disease fairly rapidly to a surgical approach. The sense of urgency that I have specifically with regard to early stage disease and a possible surgical intervention, I can summarize based on my own anecdotal experience, some of which is actually published, but also by looking at the international literature again, including a paper by Waters et al. in 2013 published in Triple O that looked at 109 patients who were managed with non-surgical therapy. We don't know for how long, but what we know in that study is that 26 of those patients developed progressive osteonecrosis. That is stage one disease progressed to stage two, stage two disease progressed to stage three. 42 of those 109 patients demonstrated unchanged disease. Partially resolved disease was seen in 26 patients who underwent non-surgical therapy and six patients with conservative therapy, approximately 5%. Only 5% of the patients in the water study developed resolved disease due to non-surgical therapy. So this study and many, many others that recommend surgical treatment of early stage disease, I think points out to us a couple of very important things about hemorrhage. One is that the resolution of disease of patients undergoing non-surgical therapy is very, very unlikely. But perhaps equally importantly is the fact that patients with early stage disease will develop progressive disease. So what could start off is a stage one marginal resection could ultimately end up without surgical therapy. And stage three disease that will require a segmental resection of the maxilla, for example, 
and an elaborate reconstruction. I think that our due diligence tells us that we need to attempt to identify who these patients are and attempt to prevent worsening progressive disease that might take a very manageable, fairly conservative surgical procedure with early stage disease and curative intent in mind and become something much worse if we don't provide early surgical management. Yeah, I think what really muddies the water is knowing what caused this embryology, because it could be IV um, drugs that are worse than the oral drugs. And also, are they still on those drugs or not? I think would be another factor in addition to patients' comorbidities, as you alluded to earlier. That's a good point, Dr. Patel. And um, what I think that we've learned over the last 18 years, since 2003, is that there are many more benefits to bisphosphonate therapy and RANK-L inhibitor therapy than there are detriments. Stated differently, the risk-benefit ratio of administering these medications far moves to the benefit side. But the risks are certainly there, but all medications are associated with known risk. And so what that means is that Oftentimes, I will recommend to patients that they maintain their bisphosphonate or RANK-L therapy postoperatively. And in fact, there are some patients with stage three disease who do have concerning burdens of metastatic disease or a bone mineral density in an osteoporotic woman, for example, that is very concerning and suggestive of impending pathologic fracture. In these patients, not uncommonly, I will not recommend discontinuation of their anti-resorptive therapy in preparation for surgery, nor will I recommend that they seize their anti-resorptive therapy postoperatively. The anecdotal inf information that I can share with you is that it doesn't seem to matter. And so your point is very well taken, Dr. Patel, in terms of causation. I think what we've realized is that there is a casual association between bisphosphonate medications and RANK-L inhibitors and osteonecrosis of the jaws. Casual, not causal. So I think it's very important to point that out to patients because, as we all know, Patients come into our offices fearful of this perceived side effect of these medications. Many of them have taken themselves off these medications even before coming into our offices. And an even larger number of these patients are quite reticent to discontinuing these medications postoperatively. But the problem is that we may be putting patients in harm's way if we agree with that patient-directed strategy. Stated differently, we know that osteoporosis is a tremendous public health concern in the United States. A pathologic fracture, for example, of femoral head or axial skeleton can place many of these patients in bed, subject them to thromboembolic disease, to pneumonia, or merely interfere with their quality of life, and that's unacceptable. 
And so because of this great public health concern, I think it's important that patients think very clearly about their decisions regarding discontinuation of anti-resorptive therapy in the patient who has postmenopausal osteoporosis or osteopenia, for example. Dr. Carlson, uh, two questions. One is um, if you are going to offer that conservative treatment of doing nothing or just medical management for the patient of your selection, how long do you wait? And then kind of what you were just talking about, continuation of drugs, uh, where you stand with the drug holidays then? These are great questions, Dr. Akbari. I I appreciate the opportunity to elaborate on, on some of my prior comments. As I mentioned earlier, the international literature is very conflicting in terms of the recommendation for non-surgical management of these patients. And in fact, it almost seems diametrically opposed. That is that some authors recommend exclusively non-surgical therapy for early stage MRONG, and others will recommend an immediate turning to surgical therapy. The appropriate response is probably somewhere in between. And I think what is real important, as I mentioned earlier, is that we not apply a one-size-fits-all to the management of this disease and its three stages. I think we need to individualize treatment strategies based on some of the parameters that I mentioned earlier, and that is the patient's medical comorbidity, their social habits, for example. So if we identify a patient with stage one or stage two disease early on, and we enter into that all-important shared decision-making process, and we decide to monitor the patient's disease, apply watchful waiting, for example, with non-surgical methods, I think it's very important to apply a frequent follow-up evaluation of those patients, both clinically and radiographically and identify the progression of disease that might be occurring. The paper that I quoted a moment ago by Waters indicated that two-thirds of patients with early-stage disease will progress. And so if we identify during our implementation of non-surgical therapy that progression is occurring, then we probably need to change our strategy and recommend to patients that we adopt surgical treatment. When that happens is very variable. And so those follow-up appointments are very, very important. Patient compliance with office visits is absolutely essential to make sure that we're doing the right thing for patients. I will share with you personally that in my experience, I don't observe longer than a two-month period of time before changing my strategy from non-surgical methods to surgical intervention. Certainly, as I mentioned earlier, when patients present with stage three disease, I think that's relatively non-controversial. And at that point, our real investigation must be placed in the patient's operability and their resectability. We wanna make sure that we are intervening with stage three disease at the appropriate time, given the parameters that we discussed earlier. In terms of your second question regarding drug holidays, 
This is also a very compelling discussion in our understanding of Emrond, because as we know, many of the medications that are prescribed for patients with metastatic cancer and with osteoporosis, in fact, have very long half-lives. So in many respects, the drug holiday isn't justified scientifically. Taking a patient off Fosamax, for example, for postmenopausal osteoporosis, where Fosamax is believed to perhaps have up to a one-decade half-life, will not be really beneficial to patients because of that lengthy half-life. If we take them off for three to six months, for example, before performing a surgical procedure, will that be beneficial? Intuitively, we know that the answer is probably no. Similarly, we know that Zometa has a very long half-life, and therefore, scientifically, it's probably not justified to observe a drug holiday in these patients as well. Interestingly, when the RANK-L inhibitors were introduced many years ago, it was believed that the half-life of denosumab was distinctly lower than Zometa and Fosamax, for example. And so this belief, at least anecdotally, suggested that a drug holiday might be beneficial as well. But I think that we're not quite there yet. I don't think that we have sufficient information to state that scientifically and to justify a drug holiday in these patients. I think those are really good points. We had a long discussion about drug holiday ourselves and, you know, there really isn't a clear answer. And what you just said actually makes a lot of sense. And it's something that we would not be hesitant to practice. Um, Let's answer some of these questions that we have from treatment algorithms. I know you already answered a bunch, but there's still some questions that we would like for you to help us with. So I actually had a patient last week. She was an IV chemotherapy for cancer treatment. And I hadn't seen her originally. A month ago, she had come with a sequestrum. And I saw her scan and she was on my schedule. And I'm like, oh, great. She has a sequestrum. Nobody told me about this. And now she's going to come back. I could have done something the first time. But when I saw her a month later, it's gone. The sequestrum's gone. She wasn't any sort of conservative therapy, nothing. She wasn't an IV bisphosphonate. There were two new IV chemo drugs that I wasn't familiar with. So obviously, you know, chemo always a big risk factor. But um, how long should one wait for spontaneous extrusion of the diseased bone? This is a great question, Dr. Patel. And, and I think that the answer to that question lies in successive patient appointments that are coupled fairly closely together in defining the, the patient's likely course. For example, what we notice is that patients with very sclerotic disease clinically and radiographically are very unlikely to sequester. These patients have truly benefited by the osteoclastic inhibition associated with these medications and are very likely going to require a surgical procedure in the future. But there are other patients, for example, who come into our clinics who at their initial appointment have bone that's probably not nearly as sclerotic. 
bone that just has that look clinically and radiographically that it's going to sequester. I think those are precisely the patients who require maybe a little bit extra time to do exactly that, to sequester. Some of these segments of bone are mobile at initial presentation and consistent with the AOMS physician paper can probably undergo a very conservative debridement with local anesthesia to encourage further sequestration and then follow those patients closely thereafter. I think what is very important, however, is to understand that after that initial non-surgical or, or relatively conservative surgical management is that if they don't properly heal in a short period of time, meaning approximately a month uh, thereafter, that in fact, we commit them to a surgical procedure for their residual disease. I might make a comment if I could, Dr. Patel, about your comment regarding patients who are naive to anti-resorptive and anti-angiogenic medications. This was one of the themes that we talked about in our paper published in the Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery Clinics in 2014 that we entitled Anti-Resorptive Osteonecrosis of the Jaws, Facts Forgotten, Questions Answered, Lessons Learned. Interestingly, we published this paper probably prematurely because it was published just in advance of the 2014 position paper by the AOMS in which they recognized a second classification of drug in the designation of Emronge, and those were the anti-angiogenic medications. Around 2013 and early 2014, before the publication of that position paper in April 2014, we were starting to change the nomenclature of this disease. And we recognized that bisphosphonate-related osteonecrosis of the jaws might be a little bit too focused. Many authors, including my team and I, realized that the anti-resorptive medications were really associated with patients with osteonecrosis. And so for a short period of time, we started to call this ARONGE or anti-resorptive osteonecrosis of the jaws. And so that was the method of my madness entitling that paper, anti-resorptive osteonecrosis of the jaws, facts forgotten, questions answered, lessons learned. What I attempted to point out to our specialty and others reading this piece of literature was that in fact, there were many patients naive to anti-resorptive medications. One of the things that we identified in our review of the international literature is that one chemotherapeutic agent continued to be recognized in developing osteonecrosis of the jaws in adults and interestingly in pediatric patients. And that was cyclophosphamide or cytoxin. It kept surfacing in the literature that I read. And so this was really a wake-up call to all of us, I think, to recognize that patients with osteonecrosis of the jaws, cancer patients, for example, might have another etiology other than bisphosphonate medications, and it might be 
their chemotherapeutic agent that's primarily being used to treat their cancer. So this was the fact forgotten because our review of the international literature indicated that this observation had been around for a long time. So one of the things that, that I recognize is that this disease is, as I mentioned at the outset, truly fascinating, truly enigmatic. But for some reason, this form of osteonecrosis has really gotten our attention more so than any other form of osteonecrosis that oral and maxillofacial surgeons treat frequently in the United States. Again, radiation tissue injury, osteoradionecrosis, and osteomyelitis. Those two diseases seemed to be relatively mundane in 2003 when we started talking about bisphosphonate-related osteonecrosis. Why is this? I'm not exactly sure. But what I know that's happened to our specialty is since 2003, we have all truly developed a relationship with dead bone. This is a fascinating concept, not just hemorrhage, but every form of dead bone that we treat. Our specialty has developed a relationship with dead bone. We need to continue to study it. We need to publish our outcomes in the international literature. And most importantly, as I mentioned, since our specialty still has two cohorts in terms of how to treat early stage disease, we need to not be afraid to engage in difficult conversations to sort these things out and make sure that we are all collectively doing the right thing for our patients at all times. That's uh, very well said, Dr. Carlson. Let's uh, focus on the margins of the resections that you, uh, you had discussed for your surgical treatment. How do you decide on the margins of your resections? Sure. So I think one of the things that we pointed out in our paper published in the May 2009 issue of the Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery, entitled The Role of Surgical Resection in the Management of Bisphosphonate-Related Osteonecrosis of the Jaws, where we identified 103 sites of bronze in 82 patients and performed resection of those 95 of 103 sites of bronze. What we arbitrarily assigned was a one centimeter margin of radiographically uninvolved bone. We importantly pointed out in that paper in 2009 that these patients with bronze require not only plain film imaging of their disease, but also CT scans. And the reason for that is because the panoramic radiograph will permit us to preliminarily plan a margin, but the CT scan will definitely allow us to refine that margin. A centimeter is what we planned for all of the patients who underwent resection in that paper, those 95 resected sites. And I might add that 91.6% of the patients we resected healed in an acceptable fashion with durable resolution of their disease. What is most important in terms of that margin is to verify it clinically intraoperatively. What I have found is that it is very easy to resect back 
to bleeding viable bone. And unlike the early comments that we were told in the international literature in the early 2000s that we couldn't do that, in fact, we can. But here's the difference, and here's what comes up often in my discussions with members of our specialty. They recognize that, in fact, that anti-resorptive therapy has a systemic effect on all bones of the human skeleton. So what that means is when we resect back to bleeding viable bone in a segmental resection, for example, or even a marginal resection, the remaining bone, in fact, continues to be complexed with anti-resorptive agent, but it remains viable. That observation has led me to dispute the claim that these drugs are responsible for this disease. Because if that bone is viable, even though it's complexed with anti-resorptive medication, then how can we say that that anti-resorptive medication has caused the osteonecrosis? So I think that that one centimeter margin has served our specialty quite well. It's what I continue to do at this time. And in terms of mandibular resections, one of the other questions that I guess I will ask and answer is how do we distinguish between planning for a marginal resection of the mandible and a segmental resection of the mandible? One of the wonderful anatomic landmarks within the mandible is the neurovascular canal. In a patient who has an otherwise normal size mandible without significant atrophy, what I find is that disease located above the neurovascular canal will likely be very amenable to a marginal resection in terms of treatment of that disease. However, it's important to understand that disease that extends into the canal or below can only be managed with curative intent with the segmental resection of the mandible. In the maxilla, and I think this is one of our great opportunities, I've noticed in my experience that resection of the maxilla for osteonecrosis when performed properly is almost an inevitable cure. But it's important to be able to distinguish between those patients who require an alveolectomy and those patients who truly require a partial maxillectomy. The distinguishing features in making those decisions are patients who have alveolar extension of their maxillary sinus, for example. When we see that, and that one centimeter margin will end up in the maxillary sinus, then those are patients who we must initially proceed with a partial maxillectomy. But with patients who have a non-atrophic alveolus and who have limited disease, we have the wonderful opportunity to provide an alveolar resection. It's not a marginal resection. That's only a procedure that we perform in the mandible. But an alveolar resection of the maxilla, while avoiding the maxillary sinus and the reconstructive implications therein. Specifically, what I have found to be very valuable, as we outlined in our 2009 paper in the Journal of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery, is that when a partial maxillectomy is performed that violates the maxillary sinus, it's incumbent on us to perform a two-layer closure. The tissue that permits us to do it is the buccal fat flap. That buccal fat pad can be advanced into the sinus 
permit a closure of mucosa over it, result in a two-layer closure, and under good circumstances, prevent fistulization postoperatively. That's a wonderful opportunity in that anatomic site of the maxilla. Dr. Carlson, have you ever used BMP or like infuse in those area for possible like bone formation or, or just further layers of preventing fistula? I think that bone morphogenetic protein represents a real opportunity in patients in terms of reconstruction. We performed studies in the past that looked at the placement of BMP in extraction sockets in dogs, for example, who had been exposed to bisphosphonate medications and found a decreased incidence of osteonecrosis in those extraction sockets that were exposed to BMP. So it provides, a, a, at least in the animal model that we investigated, an opportunity to reduce the chance of the development of osteonecrosis. In my hands, the BMP product has been valuable in the reconstruction of patients, particularly, if not exclusively, those with osteoporosis. These are the patients who really require a jumpstart, if you will. The patients whose autogenous bone may not be suitably dense to regenerate the mandible in a segmental defect following resection for hemorrhage, for example. And so, not uncommonly, what I'll do is I'll add their autogenous bone that suffers from a lack of bone mineral density by definition in osteoporotic patients to BMP, and that'll provide me a better opportunity to consolidate that graft postoperatively. Our anecdotal experience with this in humans indicates that that is a very nice graft model and that these osteoporotic patients, in fact, provide very nice bone remodeling and consolidation of particulate grafts from the posterior hip, for example. So in my hands, I think that uh, BMP is perfectly suited in that specific model. While we are talking about reconstruction, what are your thoughts or experiences with autogenous, non-vascularized and vascularized graft? And what are some of the indications for using a free vascularized lab? Sure. That's a, a great question, Dr. Patel. I think that our approach to mandibular reconstruction in patients who have undergone resection for emrange, for example, for stage three disease that has necessitated a segmental resection are really no different than the principles of mandibular reconstruction in non-emrange patients. Specifically, in my practice, I use the six centimeter cutoff in dimension for moving from a particulate graft from the posterior hip to a microvascular reconstruction with fibula. When that defect length exceeds six centimeters, I am inclined to move to the fibula. I will share with you, as in the cancer model, I think that the immediate reconstruction is very attractive in, in these patients. I think it's a great way to go. It's an opportunity to provide in one lengthy surgery, a resection and immediate reconstruction. 
not unlike our cancer patients for whom we perform a composite resection, for example, in the mandible, who are suitable candidates for an osteocutaneous free microvascular fibular reconstruction of the mandible. It's very gratifying when performed with experienced hands. They have predictable results. And I think this is a very uh, gratifying way to proceed in patients with medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaws. The outcomes that are realized are very favorable, but in specific answer to your question, I think that there are very good indications for particulate bone reconstruction. I think there are very specific indications for particulate bone graft reconstruction of mandibular segmental defects as well. The posterior hip is rich in cancellous marrow, endosteal osteoblasts, mesenchymal fibroblasts that will regenerate the bone in a patient with MRONG who's undergone a segmental resection in a delayed fashion. Here's why your question is a very good one for two reasons. Number one, we attribute MRONG to the bone remodeling suppression theory of the bisphosphonate medications. This is the theory that has been proposed, popularized, and well accepted by Drs. Allen and Burr at Indiana University. So if we assume for a moment that a patient who's been exposed to Zometa, who has stage three emrange, who undergoes a segmental resection, that that resection was necessitated by bone remodeling suppression caused by Zometa in a patient perhaps who underwent removal of a tooth. What I will share with you is that when I reconstruct those patients with particulate bone cancellous marrow from the posterior hip, that they consolidate very effectively. That consolidation means that they under, are undergoing bone remodeling. So if Zometa is a potent bone remodeling suppressive agent, and if the half-life of Zometa approximates a decade, then how can we get those posterior hip grafts to heal? It's counterintuitive, isn't it? On the one hand, the disease is felt to be caused by bone remodeling suppression. On the other hand, after we resect and reconstruct and observe very pleasing consolidation radiographically, we can't state that bone remodeling suppression existed in that patient. So either it did or it didn't. The reason why I share this with you is because I think while the bone remodeling suppression theory is a good one, it's clearly not able to be uniformly applied to our patients in the past who developed bronze. The second thing that I'll share with you very interestingly is that that same patient who developed osteonecrosis, stage three disease, undergoes a resection, effective bone graft reconstruction with particulate bone cancellous marrow from the posterior hip, a very pleasing panoramic radiograph, four months postoperatively. Remember how most of those disease processes began. They began with the removal of a tooth. That removal of a tooth caused medication-related osteonecrosis of the jaws. Well, many of those patients undergo implant placement 
either from particulate bone from the hip or a microvascular reconstruction from the fibula. And when we put implants into those bone grafts, no matter where they came from, that bone was complexed with anti-resorptive agent. The placement of those implants does not create osteonecrosis. Perhaps one of you can explain this to me. That's this happened? so fascinating. Know. This is fascinating. Can you take us down the basic science and the molecular biology theories? We, kind of, we had an episode on it and discussed it briefly, but from your take on it and your studies, how, how do you explain this phenomenon? Well, I know what we've been told. And so I can share that with you. Having just perhaps put holes in many of the theories that exist. I think the bone remodeling suppression theory is a reasonably good one. We know that bisphosphonate medications, for example, cause apoptosis or programmed cell death of osteoclasts. We know that the first cell on the scene for bone regeneration in an extraction socket is an osteoclast. An osteoclast, perhaps counterintuitively, is the first step in osteoblastic bone deposition. Of all the symbiotic relationships that exist on the planet Earth, I think it is the osteoclast and the osteoblast that share the best symbiotic relationship that exists. Interestingly, while osteoclastic development in an extraction socket is the first stage of osteoblastic bone deposition, we also know that osteoblastic presence is the first stage of osteoclastic bone resorption. It's very counterintuitive. How that happens is through rank L and rank binding that permits the mononuclear osteoclast to undergo fusion, multinuclear development, and development of an activated osteoclast. We really have two areas to prevent bone resorption. The first is upstream in which we can intervene with a RANK-L inhibitor as the osteoblast is fusing with an osteoclast precursor with rank L and rank binding, but also downstream in terms of that osteoclast that's activated, whereupon bisphosphonate medications can create an apoptosis or programmed cell death. So the molecular mechanisms that can help explain this are intuitive, but when we apply critical thinking, to this process. We can put holes all over it. And that's why I believe that it's truly impossible to say with confidence that these medications are absolutely responsible for the development of osteonecrosis. And this is why we refer to this as medication-related osteonecrosis or bisphosphonate-related osteonecrosis, MRONG and Branch rather than bisphosphonate-induced osteonecrosis of the jaws. When my patients come into the office and they are thoroughly convinced that these drugs have caused all their problems, 
They have taken themselves off these medications and they will never again resume those medications. I'll occasionally reach into the international literature and share with them the study by Hoff et al. at MD Anderson Cancer Institute. Those authors looked at 5,000 patients with multiple myeloma and metastatic breast cancer exposed to Someta and other anti-resorptive agents. And what they found is that 2% of multiple myeloma patients and 1% of patients with metastatic breast cancer exposed to Zometa will develop osteonecrosis of the jaws in a spontaneous fashion. To me, what this means is these medications can't possibly be causative in terms of their development of osteonecrosis of the jaws. Now, we also know that most of these patients develop trauma-related osteonecrosis. That is, a tooth is removed or an implant is placed. Periosteum is reflected, the bone is entered, and many of these patients develop that complex wound to which I referred earlier, and ultimately the development of osteonecrosis. So that being said, I think it's very important and just as important to discuss how we prevent this disease as it is to how we treat this disease and hopefully offer curative resection for these patients. In terms of prevention of this disease, I think it's very important to give patients their best opportunity at healing. And what that means is when teeth are removed in patients, for example, who've been treated with two years for Zometa for an underlying diagnosis of cancer, or osteoporotic patients who are smokers and type 2 diabetics, for example. It's important not just to remove those teeth, compress sockets, and expect them to heal. They very likely won't, in fact. But rather to consider, and this is where individualized treatment is so valuable, to consider the placement of growth factors, for example, to reduce the alveolus and provide a primary mucosal closure, to preoperatively adjust the patient's social habits of smoking, to provide better glycemic control, again, to treat the patient as well as their disease before that disease occurs. So these are instances where we can intervene even preoperatively and intraoperatively and reduce surprises that might occur postoperatively when damage control becomes our next intervention. Let me ask you this. You've mentioned systemic antibiotics before. When do you consider oral versus systemic antibiotics and how long with what kind of antibiotics? I think that our specialty understands that patients with stage one disease who are uninfected by definition can probably be managed without preoperative antibiotics if we choose surgical therapy or without antibiotics if we're going to apply an extended period of non-surgical management. However, stage two patients typically are infected, not all, but I believe that all stage three patients have infection, whether it be clinically apparent or occult. Here's my general approach to that and the algorithm that I can share with you 
indicates that patients with stage two disease who have infection deserve a trial of oral antibiotics. I think it's reasonable to provide culture-directed therapy to those patients, meaning that even though this is oral pus that we're looking at by definition, and even though most of these patients are probably infected with alpha hemolytic streptococcal species, that a culture is probably a reasonable thing to do. And here's why. In my experience, there are patients who have strep anginosis and strep intermedius that are resistant to penicillin and interestingly, clindamycin. In our penicillin allergic patients with stage two MRONG, what antibiotic do we most commonly look to and prescribe? Clindamycin. But many of these, in fact, are resistant to clindamycin. We have to turn to a quinolone, levaquin or cipro, for example, in the management of their disease. So if we're going to provide empiric antibiotic therapy for patients with stage two disease, not uncommonly, I'll recommend either levaquin or cipro. Levaquin is easy for patients because it's taken once a day. Cipro is not too much different. It's twice a day. And so I think these are reasonable antibiotics. If their short course of oral antibiotic therapy during their trial of non-surgical therapy is not successful, if we have them on the proper antibiotic that's culture-directed and they continue to develop infection, then I think there's a reasonable approach for a PICC line and intravenous antibiotic therapy. The drugs of choice are no different than those decisions made for oral antibiotic therapy. I think the same thing applies to stage three disease. Again, what I've learned throughout my experience is that just about all of these patients are infected, whether it's occult or clinically apparent. So I think the approach really is the same. I don't like taking a patient off to the operating room with significant oral infection if we can avoid it. Some of these patients who are refractory to oral antibiotics may also be refractory to intravenous antibiotics. Some of them may require an admission to the hospital to have direct observed antibiotic therapy, for example. They may not be compliant at home with their PICC lines, or some patients might just not be good candidates to send home with a PICC line, for example. So I, I think this is a very important decision that we make preoperatively is to attempt really at all costs to control pre-existing infection that might exist. And the reason why, particularly in patients with stage three disease, is because at the time of resection, whether we're performing just bone plate reconstruction and a delayed bone graft in the future, or a fibular microvascular reconstruction of the mandible, also with a bone plate, is that infection could result in a biofilm on that bone plate and jeopardize a successful outcome under those circumstances. So I think it's very, very important to properly manage these patients with strategic antibiotic therapy, often culture-directed preoperatively. So for stage two or stage three that don't have obvious sign of infection, how long would you give a pre-op antibiotic before taking them to the operating room? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it varies from patient to patient, but um, I think what is clear is they all benefit by that preoperative course. If they have stage two disease without obvious signs of pus, I think a few days preoperatively of oral antibiotic therapy is reasonable. The same thing probably applies to the patient with stage three disease. Providing them an oral antibiotic prescription will be value added to their outcome following resection. We know that you mentioned implant placement for this patient as to be uh, not a risk factor for them. So is that something that you recommend to all of them? Those decisions are also made on an individual basis in terms of how far we take their rehabilitation postoperatively. I think what is important is that at the time of resection, we create a strategy for reconstruction, whether it be on an immediate basis or on a delayed basis. We know that reconstruction bone plates have a limited life in patients who have a reasonable dentition remaining and a bite force that could over time loosen those screws and make the reconstruction in the future just a little bit more difficult. So while we are committing patients to segmental resection of the mandible, I think we need to keep in mind the timing of that reconstruction, whether immediate, which I believe to be ideal, or a secondary bone graft reconstruction in a variety of different methods. When patients have the inclination and the resources and interest in undergoing full dental rehabilitation, I think that placing implants in those consolidated bone grafts is a wonderful service and can truly return those patients to acceptable functional status. These are conversations that undoubtedly arise at the time of the discussion and the informed consent for segmental resection at the mandible. Patients justifiably want to be able to function acceptably in the future. They believe that implants and dental rehabilitation will get them to that point. And so it's very important to plan their bone graft reconstruction accordingly. Dr. Carlson, I heard a beep on your computer and my uh, deductive mind is telling me maybe you have a place to go and you've been with us for an hour and a half. We have about two more questions, if that's okay with you. Please, I'm, uh, I'm happy to answer a half dozen more if you like. Right <laughs> yeah. The excitement yeah. in your eyes and the smile <laughs> from our ear to ear, it's, uh, it's definitely something that I was really looking forward to. Good. I think the, the next question is something that we have read a couple of times in different articles is using the adjective techniques to kind of help us with that margin. You mentioned the one centimeter margin as your standard of practice but we have read using laser or fluorescent to identify this ideal margins. What, are, what is your take on it or evidence behind that that you support or don't? I think that those adjunctive techniques are offered by very reputable people in our specialty. Uh, one is Ken Fleischer at New York University, who I actually had the opportunity to train in his residency program while I was at the University of Miami. Dr. Fleischer is a, a real thought leader in this discipline of MRONG. And while I haven't utilized his techniques, I do feel that they're probably very valuable and um, worthy of, uh, of utilizing. My 
approach to this disease, specifically related to resection, has been standardized uh, in my practice, and I tend not to veer too far off course. And so I think that I'm very predictable in terms of my management of these patients, and I apply a very standardized protocol specifically to their uh, resection. But you correctly identify that there are a number of very valuable techniques that members of our specialty should, should look at, read the international literature regarding these, and treat their patients accordingly. You know, while we are talking about agentive therapy, um, what, what's your take on it using PRF while wound, with the wound closure, if you can't get primary closure or otherwise? It's a great question, Dr. Patel. Um, I think that it's valuable, particularly in the extraction model. The literature by Scaletta and his cohorts shows very impressive outcomes in the extraction model in humans when, when using growth factors, for example. Your question really reminds me of one of the most important things that we do at the time of the resection. I always share with my residents that it's very easy to resect osteonecrotic bone, but it is more technically demanding and thought-provoking in terms of the soft tissue closure that is required to permit patients to heal properly. A primary closure is absolutely essential related to a resection. If we anticipate that we won't be able to provide a primary closure, then we need to start thinking about soft tissue flaps and grafts and the like. In managing the soft tissue closure, it's absolutely essential to not traumatize the tissues, to properly debride granulation tissue in these wounds, to eliminate any source of infection that might exist, to debride that periosteal reaction in remaining proximal and distal segments to help those patients properly heal because that periosteum in surrounding proximal and distal segments of the mandible may in fact be infected. It's not dissimilar from granulation tissue that has to be thoroughly debrided in those areas. And so I think that what we need to always be thinking about is that when we are performing a resection, that we do it in the best interest of proper healing. And to that end, I'd like to just share some additional information that we haven't talked about as much yet. And that is some definitions that exist in the literature. A surgical procedure performed by one surgeon for hemorrhage might be completely different than a surgical procedure performed by another. I think it's very important in the international literature to standardize surgical terminology, nomenclature, for example. To that end, debridement has oftentimes been equated with resection in the international literature. In fact, they're not. The best paper that I frequently quote to disprove the equality of those procedures was written by Graziani et al. in 2012. They looked at 347 patients undergoing a surgical procedure for hemorrhage. 
227 of them underwent debridement. That is a, a scraping, an extended sequestrectomy, for example, a curatage or what have you, versus resection that was performed in 120 patients that involves a reciprocating saw or a surgical handpiece, for example, with saline coolant. The outcomes of this study are very meaningful to me and somewhat intuitive in that the patients who underwent a local debridement experienced a positive outcome in only 54% of cases. Patients who underwent a surgical resection, as I defined, experienced a positive outcome in 73% of patients, and the differences were statistically significant. So when we talk about surgery, I think we need to qualify it. It's either a debridement, that might be a sequestrectomy in part, or a true surgical resection as we apply to our patients with neoplastic disease. Because only then can our international community in oral and maxillofacial surgery truly understand what was done and then judge the outcomes accordingly. This decision-making is very, very important in a surgical approach to EMRONG, just as the soft tissue closure is important in these patients as well. At the core of this decision-making is a decision regarding whether we are offering curative therapy to patients or palliative therapy for patients. And I would argue that while my approach for curative intent is with surgical resection, that there certainly is value in palliating patients with a conservative surgical procedure in the form of a debridement or a sequestrectomy. We have to be very clear on what our intention is. And we have to be able to offer scientific support for those decisions. Yeah, you, you bring up actually really good points about palliative treatment versus curative. I don't think literature is very clear on that either. My current success rate in treating patients with Emrange in identifying 390 sites of bisphosphonate-related osteonecrosis of the jaws in 287 patients as of mid-May 2021, identified an overall success rate of surgery in 91% of those patients. I define success in the surgical management of these patients is the maintenance of full mucosal closure, the absence of infection, and the durability of that bone plate and screws postoperatively. I've had 27 refractory sites in those patients who I've resected. 26 of them have been in the mandible, interestingly, and one in the maxilla. So I've resected 294 sites to date, 216 in the mandible, of which 119 were marginal resections, 97 of which were segmental resections, and I've performed 78 resections in the maxilla. Those refractory sites in the mandible tell me a couple of different things. One is it could be the bone plate, or two, it could be the relative poor vascularity of the mandible compared to the maxilla. Again, only one refractory site of 78 maxillectomies. That success rate 
translates to 98.7% when managing osteonecrosis in the maxilla of all different stages. But getting back to the statistic in the mandible, is it the relative hypovascularity? Is it the bone plate in those patients who have undergone segmental mandibular resections? I don't think we know the answer, but I will share with you that where there is infection preoperatively in a case of mandibular emrange, I believe that it is appropriate preoperative management to address that infection to help reduce the chance of biofilm disease on the plate if we're performing a segmental resection in the postoperative period. I think this makes good sense, but in terms of looking at this objectively, I don't know that we have data to show that it's absolutely essential. Dr. Carlson, this has been truly an invigorating conversation. As you have answered many of our questions, you have certainly begged more questions. Uh, we have successfully, through the conversation, managed to put more holes in the existing <laughs> <laughs> theories and understanding of this disease. So I'm not sure if you're closer or further away from real <laughs> answers, but uh, it's definitely good to have evidence-based conversations and ask those difficult questions and have those difficult conversations. So thank you so much for your times. Our listeners probably will be asking us a lot of follow-up questions and we will certainly engage you. Well, I appreciate very much the opportunity to, to chat with you. As you can tell, this is something that keeps me up at night. Uh, it's fascinating in my primary practice of head and neck cancer surgery. Emrange is an attractive concept and a very fascinating conversation because the large majority of these patients, in fact, have cancer. And I know that throughout 31 years of practice, nearly to date, that cancer patients are very special people. They have very special problems. They have problems that we don't quite understand yet, and that applies to Emronge. And as I share with my residents frequently, I think that over the last 18 years, what I've realized is that there is more We've learned a lot about this disease, there's no question, but there's so much work to be done. And I would say that there's more we don't know about this disease than we do. And that's what makes it so attractive to continue the search for truth. This is part of my call to action in my career. This is part of my sense of urgency. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that we need to all sit around the table together and continue this conversation because ultimately we'll understand it far better and we'll all be properly taking care of patients in the future. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your residency at the University of Tennessee? This program was established initially in 1952. So we are 69 years old uh, currently. I proudly and humbly serve as the fourth chairman of this Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. Uh, over those years. I've been here since 2002. In 2013, I decided to make a transformational change in the training of residents in this program. Historically, it had been a four-year program. It had worked out beautifully, and I recognized the great value of continuing to train residents in this program in four years. But in 2013, 
we initiated our six-year program that now contributes to the hybrid nature of training in this academic department. Each year I take one typically four-year resident in the program and one six-year. We also have a fellowship in head and neck oncologic surgery. It's a one-year program. I have one fellow um, each year. So from an educational standpoint, there's a lot going on here. Uh, I think that I stay very young because I hang out with young people all the time. I'm inspired by the opportunity to make them better. I'm enthusiastic about giving them the same opportunities that I've had in my career. And uh, it's just a very exciting time for this program. We um, have a, a remarkable commitment to major surgery uh, in our academic program. Uh, we receive applications uh, all over the, the country, which is very humbling uh, to me. It's just a very exciting time. I, I just uh, thoroughly enjoy being here and um, our, our numbers in pathology are, are tremendous, including uh, MRONG, our, our numbers in cancer, salivary gland tumors, adenogenic tumors are, are very stimulating to my career. And we um, oversee a, a very impressive trauma initiative in, in the department um, uh, in excess of 1,100 procedures per year. So it's a, it's a great time to be in, in Knoxville. I think um, uh, the residents seem very happy and um, it's, it's my job to make sure that continues to happen, so. Well, thank you so much. I know a lot of our listeners are either applying to be residents or residents are applying for fellowships. So I think this would be very helpful for them. Right. And once again, we really appreciate your time. I know we could be here all day talking about this and um, I, we are appreciative of your time. I think we're going to call it a day for MRON series now. <laughs> Good. So we have learned a lot from this podcast series and we hope our listeners did too. Um, this topic, like you said, is still evolving and there's a lot more that's coming out every year. And, um, you know, we have done our best here to summarize what we know until now and bringing you on to talk about surgery was perhaps one of the best moves because, you know, like you said, there's still a lot of theories out there and in nothing concrete that we can follow. So having you here was definitely helpful. Right. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay. So I'd like to uh, end with this pond by saying, let's keep our relationship with this dead bone disease alive by right. keeping our curiosity alive. Okay. Until next time. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.